Hi there, this is Martin Willis with Seaboard Appraisals and Estate Sales, and I hope you enjoy this free podcast. And this show, just so everyone knows, it's not about slamming uh, an auction house or any particular auction houses or the auction way of selling, but everyone makes mistakes, and um, I don't care what type of auction house it is, there are mistakes. I still believe in the auction business and the auction method of selling 100%. And for every story we can tell you about what happens at auction where someone hits a jackpot, there's probably 10 instances where either a picker or someone at an estate sale got a major fine. There are a lot of people that are living very happy right now that had a major fine at an estate sale um, or at uh, different types of uh, purchases, say, if someone calls in a dealer. And sometimes, uh, this happened to me at the age of 18. I made a mistake. I bought something for, the, for I think it was $15 at the age of 18. And I sold it at the time for 400 which was really uh, big for me then. But I had no idea what I had. Um, I had no idea what I was buying. So that, as well, does happen. And uh, so today we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, kind of people hitting the jackpot, but also the legalities of it all. And uh, I am very happy to have our guest today, um, and it's Dr. Ann Laurie uh, Bandel, and she's an attorney at law at the law firm Borel and Barbie in Geneva, where she advises clients in matters related to works of art, copyright contracts, estate planning, uh, foundations, and trusts. Uh, she again is a she's a lecturer in uh, copyright and entertainment law. That's another whole thing. Um, in Switzerland, she's a guest lecturer in uh, cultural heritage and art law at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And she is also the director of art law of the Art Law Foundation, a foundation that aims to promote and coordinate the work and research in the field of art law. In particular, it supports the research and teaching activities in art law. Um, she holds a Ph.D. from the University of Geneva, and she has also published a book, which we're going to be talking about, of misattributed works, along with uh, Ed, Edward Elgar. And uh, so I want to welcome you, uh, welcome you to the show. Thank you so much, Martin. It's a pleasure to be on. Yes, and uh, I think it's going to be an interesting topic. Before we get started and I start asking you questions about yourself and everything, I would like to tell you about a mistake I made um, and that someone profited very well, okay? <laughs> Great. <laughs> As an auction house. Um, now, I, I purchased the auction house from my father back in 1987. I think it was either 85 or 87. And uh, he was actually with me the day I went into this person's house. Uh, there's a coastal town here in Massachusetts, Ipswich, Massachusetts. And... Um, it was a very nice house call. The guy had beautiful period antiques and paintings and really nice things, but he only wanted to sell a few things. First thing he said when we walked in the door, he said, I have a um, uh, a bunch of stuff in the garage. I had a, a garage sale. There's a bunch of junk left. I'm only going to do business with you if you take that stuff and sell it to It's all in boxes. So we took a look around, and I talked to my father real quickly, and he says, yeah, we should do it. So I said, sure, we'll do it. So in that lot, um, he had me reach down into a clock, and I found, he told me to open a bag, and I did, and there was a a spoon, a silver spoon made by Paul Revere. Um, There was, uh, I think we got a really nice clock out of it, so it was well worth taking all the junk in uh, in the garage. Well, in a box in the garage, I'm gonna, for those people watching on YouTube, I'm going to show you the image. Um, I'm pretty sure this is it. Um, and so in the box was a rug fragment, and it looked like it should have been thrown away in one of the boxes. And so basically um, we're selling like box lots at the end of the auction, and the box went for $80 with that junky little rug in it, which was uh, actually quite a bit of money back in 1987 for a box lot. So about a year later, um, somewhere around a year, maybe a year and a half later, um, I got a phone call, and it was from um, it was from someone 
writing an article, a freelance writer writing an article for Time Magazine. And she said, uh, I would like to talk to you about a rug fragment that um, started out at your auction. So I said, really? I said, well, tell me the story about it, if you would. And um, she said, well, it went through many hands. And she said, first, uh, you sold it for $80. I still didn't remember it at the time. I had to think about it. And then she told me who bought it, who came to the auction. And she said, well, he sold it for, say, $500. And she went down the path of where this went. It finally went to an auction in Brussels, and it sold for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> so in nineteen eighty-seven, that was a heck of a lot of money. And so I said, you know, I will talk. Uh, I'll give you some information, but you can't say my name, the auction house, or even what state the auction house was in. So <laughs> I was just too embarrassed. Um, so this this uh, sort of thing happens, right? I mean, that's what you did your book on. Exactly. Well, wonderful story. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry you were on the, the seller's side and not on the buyer's side. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that does happen a lot. And um, <laughs> again, like I said, we're not here to, um, you know, squash uh, the auction method because it's a great method and there's a lot of great stories. I mean, I've made a lot of people really happy over the years of things that went the other way. But um, so a little bit about yourself. Can you tell us uh, your background and what you, got you interested in art? Sure. So, um, so I studied law, as, um, as you've understood by now, but I've always been passionate about art. Um, I worked as a volunteer for several institutions, such as the Opera in Geneva or um, currently the Elysee Photography Museum in Lausanne. Um, to mobilize young people to um, get involved with culture and art. So this is always something that has fascinated me. And while studying law, I actually realized that law governs basically anything, including arts. So um, so I was really thrilled to, to know that there was a way to combine both my passion and my law degree and to actually specialize in art law. Wow. So I, I did that. I, sta I started a PhD um, in Geneva at the Art Law Center at the University in Geneva. And um, while doing that, I was teaching and researching um, art law. And it's a very broad field. So there is anything from the market, import, export, the protection of cultural heritage. Um, you mentioned entertainment. So it's really, really broad, um, which is also... Uh, why it's it's very fun. Oh, it is very fun. I, I'm sure it is. And so uh, as far as the topic of the book, was there something that personally happened to someone either you know or yourself um, for uh, diving into a project like this? So um, after the end of my law degree, I did an internship at Christie's Legal Department in London. I really wanted to know more about this auction world um, and how it works. And um, after this traineeship, I was so fascinated by it that I decided to write my PhD, um, and which is basically the book um, about the auction uh, market. Um, and I had no idea then what direction it would take, but I knew it would be about the auction world. Oh, okay. So uh, what about... Um some of the stories, I think it would be, we have a lot of, I didn't realize this, we have quite a few people in chat already, and there, someone's already talking about uh, stiff teddy bears that brought thousands at an auction after they sold it. <laughs> so there's, a, there's some interest in, in uh, chat, too. So we'll probably have some questions from there. But um, how, well, I should ask you how you began a project like this. So you begin with a theme, which um, was the auction business. And what um, interested me most at the beginning was the dispute resolution process, as a lawyer would be interested. So um, because you have this threefold relationship between the seller, the auction house and the buyer, how do auction houses you know, manage once a dispute arises? So that was the, my first aim. And then I came across an article about the sale of a sleeper. Ah. And I was fascinated by that. And I thought, this is a great topic because there is nothing about it. No one has written anything extensive 
about this phenomenon. And it combines everything. It combines art history, it combines the law, the markets. Um, so um, I very quickly knew that this was uh, what I wanted to write about, um, sleepers at auction. So maybe I should define them because yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, it's, it's quite a word that um, we hear now in the in the press. So sleepers are basically works of art or antiques that are being sold uh, under a wrong attribution um, and uh, under obviously a much um, underrated value. Um, and the example I often give is, well, the one you gave is that you find something in your cellar and you think it's not worth much or anything, and it happens to be an old master painting. So, um, and there are quite a few stories like this, yes. which is obviously uh, the whole fascination. Right, right. Uh, I just a quick example. I worked in, I worked in uh, California for uh, six years at an auction house, and um, at that time there was a um, there was a woman in Southern California that our truck went down to and picked up things out of her garage. Well, she had a painting in her garage that just sat there that she inherited from Italy. An old master um, dealer actually came to the house in Italy. And he discounted it. Um, and <laughs> later it was attributed, and I can't remember the artist's name, but it went for $600,000, and I watched it just go up. So sometimes, what I'm getting at here is, sometimes it doesn't matter how it's attributed. If enough people, if there's enough images online and people can see the details of it. Um, now, this sold over the phone uh, to Italy, and it actually sold. There was no problem with the sale, and the people... It was 100% what the people were thinking it was. So sometimes it can be a mistake, and it has a really happy ending. This woman yes. was thrilled. You know, of course, she was beside herself, paid off her house, put her kids <laughs> through school, all that. It it does happen, um, but I would say you still take a risk because the attribution is not accurate. So, yes. um, And you hadn't had the time to do a full verification on um, on the work, you, you you didn't do any scientific testing and so on. So you still take a risk. And what I found out doing um, the uh, the analysis of all these cases was that in 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 any event, you will never pay the actual market price for the work with its accurate attribution. You still kind of put yourself um, a, a, a limit. Uh, as to what you're you want to to buy for it's basically it's gambling oh yeah there's there's a lot of gambling <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a lot of gambling um out there and that's um that's kind of an you know an attraction to dealers i really think that you know i, I know i have a lot of dealer friends that they go to every single auction and you know in europe where you are there's a lot more auctions than there are here in the united states um, especially in england that's you know, five auctions every day of the week, you know, at least in, in London. Um, so, uh, but there are people that are out there. It's kind of like fishing. They're trying to catch the big fish. And I know a lot of stories where I want to tell you an example before we get into some of the examples you have. And uh, this actually happened to a friend of mine. He went to an auction where something was properly attributed and um, nobody bid. He he bought this painting for $60,000, I think it was, with his brother and himself, and they turned around and resold it for $800,000. Um, what is the legality? Is there any legality issue in a case like that? So in this case, there was no change as to the attribution. It was basically only a pricing issue. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, if you are the, the seller... And um, there is no intermediary, there is no auction house, for example. Well, then you set the price you want, basically. Um, that's, that's the rules of the market that apply. However, if, you, if there is an auction house that is an intermediary, um, the auction house has some, some um, duties of care, including um, the duty to, um, you know, to assess the item uh, properly. So that could be an issue um, if, if you know, pricing has not been, I mean, the estimate price, for example, has not been established properly. But it's a, it's a really uh, tricky undertaking. 
Yes. Um, can you let's uh, let's talk about some of the examples that you uh, have in your book. Um, and I don't know. I do have some images that I can pull up as we're talking about it, but I don't know exactly what you're going to be talking about. Sure. <laughs> so, let's, so yeah, let's start out with uh, one of the uh, more exciting <laughs> or maybe legal issues uh, that happened during a, a find a sleeper. So um, basically, sleepers um, happen if no one realizes, uh, and especially the auction house doesn't realize um, what the actual value and attribution of the object is. So what mostly happens is there is a very low estimate price for the work, and it gets sold at a much higher price, hammer price. And very quickly afterwards, a few months later, um, there is a second sale with the uh, accurate attribution, and there it gets sold for much more. So this is a scenario that I've come across in a few cases. I'll give you an example. Um, there was a regional auction house in, um, in England, in Somerset, that uh, had offered a jug uh, and it attributed it as a 19th century French claret jug uh, that was in early 2008. And the estimate price range for that item was between 100 and 200 pounds. Now, the lot was finally sold to a buyer for 220,000 pounds. So you can tell there was quite an increase here. Wow. Um, and so everyone understood that something must have gone wrong in the sale. And... Um, here, the auction house managed to um, agree with the buyer uh, to cancel the sale um, and to re-offer um, the jug at, um, at Christie's. And Christie's then offered the same item under its actual uh, and correct uh, attribution, which um, said that it was actually dated 10th or early 11th century and a crystal ur made for the court of the Fatimid rulers of Cairo. So a very prestigious object, not just a jug. Um, and uh, the sale uh, estimate price um, was three million pounds and it actually sold for that amount. So um, here we really have a very impressive uh, price increase. Amazing. Uh, now what, uh, how on earth did the auction house work out a deal um, with, I don't understand, with the, the buyer is actually going to give up his jackpot and, and actually let go of the possibility of that type of money? How did that work out? No, um, probably what happened here was that all parties agreed to re-offer the sale at auction and that they would all get a percentage of the sale price. But all of this is obviously confidential. So we only get to know about it if uh, the media um, tells it or if there is um, a court case. And here, um, uh, there was no court, um, there was no case law that we could rely upon. So all we know is what the press has told us. So I assume that there must have been some financial arrangement. Yeah, I would only think that would, I mean, that is very rare. I mean, I had a situation once where I had a reserve on an item and, you know, a minimum bid and, uh, it was the the man said he wanted six for it, and I thought he meant six hundred, but he wanted six thousand, and the uh, <laughs> and it sold for less than that. And the buyer was grateful enough to to have me cancel the sale on that. But usually, when a buyer gets a score, they're not going to let go, and they don't have <laughs> to let go, really, right? Uh, in at auction, no. I mean, uh, they in the they buy they buy the item as it is attributed. Um, however, um, the sale conditions of auction houses are generally quite broadly formulated in the sense that auction houses have room to cancel auction sales under certain um, conditions. So they have some sort of flexibility. I see. Okay. Um, so we, uh, you actually looked at my website and saw the show that I did um, with Martin Kemp um, about the Salvador Monde. That was the last mm -hmm. show that I did. Um, did you look into the le legal aspects of uh, 
of that, of what that whole situation, and because I don't really have the background details of how that all came about in the beginning. Um, it, it came out, I wasn't made aware of it before the, the book was published, so um, it wasn't part of my analysis, but I'm actually quite flattered that the most expensive work ever sold at auction is a sleeper. That's right. So, um, so that originated, as far as I know, the image is up there now, that originated in a New Orleans um, auction house um, and sold for, this is for the person that didn't listen to my last show, I think it sold for something like $18,000, something like that. Um, and what was the uh, final bid? Uh, let's see, it, was, it went through s- several hands. And actually, a Russian uh, oligarch owned it at the last part of it. Um, almost sounded like he was money laundering because it had it had a low uh, low estimate on it, lower estimate than what he paid for it. Um, so that's why I say the money laundering. I hope I don't get uh, found out for saying that. <laughs> um, but anyway, it backfired if that's what he was doing. It went for four hundred four hundred twenty five million, something like that. Without the hammer price, yeah. Yeah. Uh, without the buyer's commission, sorry. Yeah. So that's that's that tops them all that I know of, as <laughs> as far as uh, as far as uh, prices uh, at auction. Um, so what would be the legal aspect of that, as far as when it comes to the um, the auction house that originally sold that? I mean, what would happen? Well. What you want to probably find out now is what the remedies um, are to the consigner. What can the consigner do is obviously very frustrated that he has sold um, a work that has now been sold further uh, for a much higher amount. So generally, um, what um, the, the, the legal standard is here is to establish that the auction house had been negligent. Um, in in the attribution process um, because uh, basically the auction house owes the consigner a duty of uh, diligence and a duty of care and that encompasses not only the attribution that uh, each auction houses uh, compiles in the in the catalog but also the estimate price which obviously were both wrong in the event of a sleeper and it's really a difficult um, um, proof because the consigner has to um, look at the circumstances surrounding the, the given sale and, um, and establish that the um, auction house had been negligent not to consult certain um, sources, you know, certain catalogs, um, certain experts, or conducting um, scientific testing, for example. So it's it requires understanding the attribution process at auction, and um, it requires also to understand the legal uh, the the reasoning. Sorry, that should have brought the auction house to the right attribution, um, and it's it's a fascinating process. So I was actually once uh, at the court hearing of a sleeper case at the London Court of Justice. Oh. And they had to buy extra um, screens so as to show the extent of documentation that was an evidence that was made available uh, by experts and scientific analysis. And um, it was a very, very large enterprise uh, for days, basically, to explain to the courts, you know, the process of attribution and 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 to analyze every little inch of a painting and what, you know, makes it uh, be something, um, you know, of the hand of the given artist or not. So it's um, it's really uh, impressive. Do you remember in particular what that piece was? Yes, that was the um, the uh, Lancelot Twites versus Sotheby's case uh, regarding an alleged um, Caravaggio painting, which has never been attributed to Caravaggio since, I should say. I think I have, uh, um, I thought I had the image of that. Um, I don't think so. Um, so that, 
how did that ever what was the final outcome of that well the consigner lost basically the um the court judge ruled in favor of the auction house uh concluding that it had not been negligent in coming to the conclusion that the work was not by caravaggio but by a follower of caravaggio um and therefore did not owe any damages to the consigner. Oh, I see. And um, so what about in a case like that? Um, I'm just pulling up the image now. In a case like that, um, what happens to all the expenses that the auction house concurs in a situation like that? Well, that was... Um actually quite um, sad in this case as it was the consigner who had to pay for the huge amount of um, litigation costs and fees that had occurred, um, which I think, uh, I don't remember exactly, but they were about uh, uh, £2 million. So these are huge amounts and um, that have to be borne by the party who basically loses the case. Wow. That is, that's really something to think of when someone is going to move, try to move forward in a situation like that. Now I'm going to ask you a question as a previous auction house owner myself. Um, when a work comes in, where does the line approximately cross where there's due diligence um, on a piece? And when I say due diligence, I mean to the part where you're talking about scientific study, where you get into real deep study and you hire an expert. If something, you know, if something is, in my opinion, if something's worth, you know, 10000 or less, um, you kind of just let it fly. You say it's signed this, it's that, it's, you know, by the artist. Um, but there's a line where if it gets crossed, then that's when you should be bringing in, like, the expert. Do you have... Do you kind of understand where I'm going with this? Um, yes, um, which is also why the, the legal standard is so difficult to apprehend because it basically does not uh, look at the results. Uh, so is there a misattribution? Yes, then the auction house is faulty. No, it looks at the process. So courts have actually held that um, that uh, clients, consigners, and buyers cannot expect that an auctioneer has closely examined all property and guarantees the accuracy of the catalog descriptions. Um, so it doesn't infer any liability based on the wrong attribution, but um, one has to um, look at the process. And here is this line that is really difficult to draw. Um, whereas the auction house um, must consult with, you know, the closest available information. Um, but of course, no one can expect um, an auction house to be an art historian and to um, conduct provenance research for months. Um, that would uh, be really contrary to the auction business. So it's a very um, hypothetical and fluid threshold that is being applied and which is um, difficult to um, to understand how it's implemented in practice. Have you seen cases that it was, uh, are these actually like uh, juried trials where there's a jury involved or is it just a judge, um, a judge present? It's just a judge. And have you ever seen a case where um, it just dragged on and they just couldn't understand how to how to judge in this cer certain circumstance, um, or are they always looking for some type of precedence, and do they create a precedence with a uh, with a judgment? Um, yes. So there there are cases that have been judged in the nineties, and the case law has set a precedent uh, as to some of the the you know the the, the requirements and standards. Um, of negligence but there are not many court cases actually on sleepers so there is still uh, room for for judges to to set um, uh, to set their own standards um, but most I would say most of the cases are really difficult to understand and involve expert 
testimony. So you would have expert that would just be called on the stand and explain their view um, of the market, of the attribution and of the painting. Uh, yeah, I've done some of that expert testimony and it is grueling. I'm, I never look forward <laughs> to it. It's not fun at all. Um, can you also tell, uh, let's hear another one of the stories um, that you have in your book, if you would. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so there was a case that I, I looked into because it was also quite impressive in terms of figures, which um, concerns a carpet that was sold at a local auction house in Germany. And it was considerably undersold because the, the local auction house failed to identify that it was originating from the mid-17th century in Kerman in southeast Persia. So it was offered at auction for 900 euros and subsequently sold at Christie's under its enhanced provenance, uh, which was that the carpet had once been owned by the Countess of Beag, um, uh, who had amassed an impressive collection of Iranian art. And the change in attribution actually dramatically impacted um, the estimate price, which Christie's set at 200,000 to 300,000 pounds. And at the auction, two interested buyers were uh, bidding against each other um, until the lot reached a final hammer price of 6.2 million pounds, including commissions. Goodness. I have the image of that up now. It is a beautiful, beautiful piece. And the thing that people never realize about rugs or anything that is made out of fabric is it's biodegradable. For something to be around and, and and look in that condition, there's probably repairs in it, but for something to be around that long is quite amazing, actually. Um, in the case of uh, that you've looked into this, were, were there ever any instances where there was greed involved and, uh, you know, mishandled, you know, pieces just out of greed, someone trying to make the big score? Um, anything like that come to mind? Um, I would say it's in sleeper cases. I wouldn't see any, I mean, greed. But the only thing that comes to mind is that obviously because of time, you know, uh, and, and catalog deadlines, auction houses don't only have that amount of, of time to, um, to establish correct attribution. So, we speak of greed, that's the only thing that comes to mind. Um, and obviously, conducting scientific testing on each lot would mean that, you know, the, the consignments would be very expensive. Um, so, well, in that regard, obviously, one can always do more and, and spend more money on, uh, on establishing the authenticity of a work of art. Um, another thing, who, who bears the cost of, say, there potentially a really nice piece comes into an auction house. Now they have to get it, you know, authenticated by the expert. It's not free. Um, a lot of times there's shipping involved. And uh, who bears the cost of that generally? Uh, um, is it a auction house or, or the uh, consigner? It depends um, on the case. Um, well, the general conditions of sale would say that um, any expert advice is on the client uh, to be paid. Um, but, you know, there is always room for negotiation and, um, and the, the auction house can find a different deal. But that, that is what is usual and that's also what auction houses recommend to their clients is that they come in with their experts and consult with their experts beforehand um, if they want to make sure um, that the attribution is correct. Now, uh, do you have any cases that you can think of when the actual expert was wrong? They made a mistake because they do make mistakes. Um, well, the famous forgery cases that we all know uh, um, yeah. have involved experts who um, were wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there is the Wolfgang Beltraki forgery case that was extensively um, uh, written about and, and told about, which involved experts who, um, who who authenticated his works. And that's what 
also reassure then the auction houses to to sell them on. So what what was the final outcome of that in particular, in a case like that? Well, um, I know of one court case that was um, that involved a painting by uh, that was attributed to Kampendonk, but was originally by the forger. And um, here the the buyers actually sued the auction house uh, in Germany, and they uh, they won the case. So the auction house had to pay them the damages that they uh, incurred from purchasing uh, the forgery. Now, the forgery cases are much easier uh, from a legal perspective because the law protects the buyer of a forgery. And you have a certain amount of years where during which you can go back to the auction house and reclaim the money you've paid um, if you actually purchased something that is um, not authentic. Yeah, I, there seems to be like there can be a lot of gray areas um, in this, which I think is kind of interesting. Now, what about the Bella Principessa? Now, that's something I did a show on a while back. Did you have that in your book by chance? Of course. Oh, um, that was actually a case from the United States that also led to um, a, a trial. And the Bella Principessa, Principessa is basically a work that um, scholars attributed to uh, Leonardo da Vinci after it was sold uh, at auction for $21,000. So we now know what a da Vinci painting is worth (laughs) under uh, its correct attribution. So there was obviously quite a gap. And in that case, what was interesting was that the consigner had actually informed the auction house that um, he believed the painting was by um, uh, an early Italian Renaissance painter um, who um, had apprenticed at the time, um, um, as um, at the same time as Leonardo da Vinci. So you know the the whole case was also about you know what of what use was that information uh, for the auction house to find maybe a link to uh, da Vinci. Now, didn't and, they? Ca- pardon me. I'm sorry. Didn't um, they have that cataloged as a German painting originally? I'm just trying to recall. Yes, um, exactly. It was actually cataloged as an. Uh, the, the according to the the complaint, it was um, conclude the the auction house concluded that it was an amateur object of the 19th century, um, and. Um, and the complaint also said that the auction house had spent 15 minutes examining the painting. Um, but finally, the, we, we will never know what the court would have ruled on the merits of this case because the claim was basically time-barred, so it was filed too late. Oh, so you mean it just couldn't go anywhere because of... Oh, so. Exactly. You have to act within a certain time period. All right. So where do you know? I know I heard when I spoke with Martin Kemp last that that was just sitting in a vault somewhere (laughs) and uh, and for sale. But um, have you heard about anything about that lately? Anything that's going on with it? Not lately, but, you know, I'm not surprised about the outcome. And this is something that I have seen before um, regarding works um, uh, that have come to to the courts and um, and the, for which the attribution or the authenticity was at dispute um, because very often you know I mean all court cases are public so everyone will know about it and the public will also know that the uh, authenticity is questioned and if there is no um, anonymous opinion of all scholars, that are um, regarded as the authority for that artist on, you know, whether or not the painting is authentic, well, then it remains in in some sort of a limbo status um, and and can't be sold because people will always have doubts. Um, So, yes, this is something that um, has happened before. Right, right. So uh, the Internet comes along in the late 90s, or I should say the early 90s, and changes everything um and you probably weren't uh you probably weren't practicing law back then (laughs) Um, but uh, 
But in your opinion, are there old cases or do you think it happens more now that the Internet, the, the auction houses have, you know, an Internet platform or, or what difference do you think that that could make over just plain catalogs? Um, well, I know from dealers who have specialized in finding sleepers, uh, they uh, have now shifted their business from looking at printed catalogs to uh, looking at online catalogs. So they they have told me that uh, basically they trained their eye uh, to become a digital eye. And it makes their work much easier because they have access to much more information um, uh, and, and much more sales uh, than before. So that has certainly changed uh, the way um, the, the market is now um, uh, happening. Um, I'm not sure in the amount of sleepers. I mean, there's certainly also an increase in sales. Um, so the, proportionally, there might be also more sleepers. Uh, but interestingly, sleepers generally happen when um, a big estate gets sold or, you know, when you do a, an entire house sale, including all furniture and its entire art collection. So when you have big amounts of works that need to be uh, authenticated for a specific sale, that's usually when a sleeper um, slips through. Right, right. Uh, we have up um, um, on the chat room saying um, there's so many forgeries out there and coins and paintings and stamps. And I, um, I've said this many times, a painting is guilty till it's proven innocent. And it's just, you know, authenticating. Uh, there's, there are so many forgeries out there. And, you know, I would suggest to the person listening, um, if they're going to buy a painting, to make sure they know what they're buying. Because uh, any signature can be on a painting, first of all. And my father told me when I was really young, um, and because I, I picked up a painting that was a forgery, and I thought it was real. And he came out and he said, it's a piece of junk. He looked at it. It was in my garage. It's a piece of junk. And I said, yeah, but it's signed Abbott Fuller Graves. And he said, always look at the painting first. He said, pretend a painting doesn't have a signature. Look at the painting. Then look at the signature. Mm. And um, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, I've been doing yeah. that ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I second that. It's good to get advice before and do your research and don't act um, under um, under stress when you purchase a work of art. Um, so I know a, a number of people that in the old days, this is what they used to do. Uh, we were talking about Internet just a minute ago. I know this guy that survived and did very, very well. Beautiful house, nice cars, everything on sleepers. That's all he ever did. He was an art dealer. Um, he would get a, uh, a weekly periodical that showed auctions coming up. He'd look for auctions with paintings. It didn't matter where in the country they were. And I watched him because he sh I shared an office with him for a while. And so he would circle all these auction houses, and they'd call every single one of them. He'd spend an entire day. And he said, hi, my name is such and such. Hey, by the way, I see you have some paintings. Do you happen to have any paintings that you don't have pictured or listed? He used to say that every time. And a lot of, or a good part of the time, they'd say yes. And he says, oh, can you send me pictures, please? And if they're signed, uh, send me pictures of the signature. And he made his living off of that alone, just by calling these auction houses. Um, so what is your advice for someone that actually is looking for sleepers? <laughs> Uh, well, the advice I got from Sleeper Sleuth was um, to train your eye because that's the first thing that um, will help you to identify as your colleague did. <laughs> um, and, and then to have a real uh, proper look at it. So to go actually to the auction room if you still have time and look at it and turn the painting around. That was also something that um, he uh, advised me. But that's obviously completely out of out of the legal sphere so i leave that to the arts historians and experts uh, uh -huh. um, i i know of a number of cases that have happened over the years and one of them i want to just tell a real quick story because you've probably heard of this this uh, particular case it has nothing to do with auctions but it's still a fascinating story um in the midwest and in, in the united states in the midwest 
there was a scrap silver gold dealer. And you probably already know the story before I even get going too far in it. So he gets this egg. This person brings him this egg. And they had it in their family. They had no idea what it was. And he thought it was absolutely beautiful and it had a, a, a watch mounted inside. He had no idea what it was, but he knew the watch was good. So he paid them basically $14,000 for this egg. Um, so he starts to look at it and he starts to you know, check things and he weighs the gold and he realizes he's going to lose money on his $14,000. He gets really frustrated. He goes online. Eventually, it turns into a $33 million uh, Fabergé lost egg. I mean, this is a this is a really good example um, when someone needs to hire a professional. I think yes, <laughs> it's a great catch, definitely. But you know, it's what I loved um, when talking about sleepers, also to students, or when I discussed it within the university. Um, it it gets you the feeling that basically anyone could just find something in his own cellar that is actually much more valuable than uh, what he thought it would be. So it's it's like winning at the lottery, basically. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I, I do have a, a, a lot of stories of things that have happened. And I don't know if you want me to, I mean, we still have time here if you want me to share a couple of them that are Please. interesting. <laughs> I want to hear some of you, you know, if you have some more stories as well. Um, I have a, a friend and um, he... Uh, actually went into an antique shop. Now, there was an auction. Back it up, there was an auction. There was a library. And in the library, there was a bunch of leather-bound books, nothing really fancy. I think the antique dealer paid, say, $400 for the entire library. He put them in boxes, and he basically, um, and, and it was a, a really extensive um, library, so there was a lot of boxes. So he put them in his shop, for like uh, $15 a box. And so uh, this guy I know, a friend, uh, actually went into the shop and he reached down, he's looking at all the different books and then he sees something interesting, picks it up. And I believe it was a handwritten transcript from Edgar Allan Poe, an entire book uh, transcript. Bottom line is he got, uh, I pretty sure it was just about $2 million for that single book that he paid $15 for. So I said, what was it like? What did you think when you saw that? And he said he was trying to stop his hands from shaking because he knew what he had uh, when he paid the $15. So I also talked to the owner, um, the guy that sold it for four, for $15. And he just, he just laughed. He said, knowledge is power. And that's kind of what this is all about. Knowledge is power. But isn't it... Isn't it crazy that the, the object hasn't changed? You know, you say his hands was shaking, his hands yeah. were shaking, but it's still the same object, basically. But it's crazy how our appreciation of an item changes as soon as, you know, the label is different. That's right. And it's all, it's all about provenance and story. You know, um, you, you mentioned earlier um, this carpet because it belonged to, what was it, a princess or it's the countess of bag mm -hmm. yeah um so in your opinion let's talk about provenance how much of a difference does that make has any attribution ever happened and they found out later besides this that the provenance made the difference um well i'd say that provenance um is often one of the factors that makes a difference because obviously it will be linked to dating the item um, and, you know, uh, figuring out its uh, location of origin if it's an antique. Um, so it's often very much linked to all the other elements of uh, an item's attribution. Um, but certainly if, you know, if you would have twice the same painting and one has been part of the royal collections, that one will be more valuable than the other one. So provenance has that additional factor also in terms of value. Right. Um, I have a friend who basically says if it loses its story, it loses its value. There's something to that. Um, not, not totally, because a lot of things are just, um, a lot of things, you know, just stand on their own. 
And um, you see this happen sometimes when, you know, pieces are unsigned, they're not particularly old. But um, in a case like that, um, say a contemporary artwork, unsigned, it comes in. Now, there was another case I heard about also in California where there was a whole bunch of artwork sold by one artist, and it ends up uh, the person made millions and millions of dollars. Um, they were all unsigned. I mean, a consigner consigning something that's unsigned, what type of... Um, what type of responsibility, first of all, would an auction house have in an unsigned piece as far as liability? Well, you would generally, first of all, look at civil liability. Um, and this would be, again, a forgery case. So uh, these are much more straightforward um, since the law here would protect the buyer, obviously. But Again, you have to act within a certain time period, which sometimes can be really tricky. And I know that in Switzerland, for example, uh, the law has changed for art and cultural property specifically. And we have extended that time limit to 30 years because we've realized that it might be actually really difficult to find out whether something is a fake or not. Um, so the, the buyer in that case could just simply turn uh, to the auction house and ask to cancel the sale and uh, be refunded on the consigner well if he has if he knew that um, that he was basically offering uh, forgeries for sale then he might be liable for fraud so um, that's another uh, it's another level of uh, of uh, action. <laughs> Right, right. Just uh, just one more quick story I'll tell, and then I'm going to ask you to tell stories. And this has to do with something that um, I have to say that I got involved in. Um, back in the early days of eBay, um, they didn't used to have spell checks. So um, I was going through one day. I mean, they had searches, and I was on a search list of all different types of artists. Um, and I had an art gallery at the time. So... And I was selling basically 19th and 20th century art. So I did this search. I would search purposely and misspell an artist's name. And one day I had a bingo, and it was a really, really good artist. Um, the artwork itself, now I can't recall the artist right now, but it was worth about um, 20 or 25000 something like that. And I bought it for under $1,000. I was so excited. And all of a sudden, the person selling it said, nope, it's not for sale. All of a sudden, just stopped. So someone either alerted them. I think that's what happened. And I couldn't get anywhere. Um, so do people, as far as you know, do people actually troll around the Internet and look for misspellings? That simple. Um, I haven't come across a misspelling in the very high range um, art sector, I would say. Sure. And the people I spoke with were mostly, you know, looking at local auction houses, but, but more art specific. And I think that the misspellings, they occur mostly when no art professional is involved. So, you know, typically eBay, as you sure. mentioned, mm -hmm. because it's directly between two individuals. Uh, and um, and huge quantities also of art being offered, you know, at a very fast pace. So right. it's um, that the the origins of the mistake are, are could be uh, quite similar. Right, right. Do you have a, another story you can share with us? Sure. So um, I've mentioned the the fact that um, sleepers happen often when you know you have big. Um, estates that are being sold and that was one case that was shared uh, with me by an auction house um, that I consulted whilst writing the book and um, it concerned an, a British businessman and art collector who died in 1995 and his heirs decided to sell his collection and consigned um, a painting for sale um, at Sotheby's. And um, basically, uh, the painting um, was uh, bought by the art collector um, at a country house auction in the 40s, and he stored it in a chicken shed ever since. 
um, he believed the painting to be by an Italian artist called Pietro Testa, but he had never uh, valued it uh, during his lifetime. Um, so when it was presented to Sotheby's, uh, the painting was actually covered by a thick layer of dust and dirt, uh, but otherwise was in good condition. And uh, the auction house offered the painting for sale under the Pietro Testa attribution and um, put an estimate price range of 10,000 to 15,000 pounds. And two galleries were actually bidding against each other for the painting. Um, and uh, it finally went for uh, 155,000 pounds, so 10 times the actual estimate. Wow. Um, and after the sale, the painting was cleaned and restored, um, and it was actually um, uh, it was authenticated by the then leading experts uh, for Poussin, which were Pierre Rosenberg and Dennis Mahon, and they both um, um, authenticated it as an original Nicolas Poussin painting, which uh, was finally sold uh, under its accurate attribution and title for £4.5 million. Pounds. Um, so, again, a, a very impressive uh, um, value increase here. Amazing, amazing. Um, someone just asked, um, is ignorance a crime? <laughs> and, and in a way, and I just wrote them back, I guess it's supposed to be when you're, uh, when you're supposed to be a professional, yes. In a, in a way, it could become one, right? I mean, that's the easiest <laughs> way to answer that. Well, it's ignorance. Is, there are different layers of ignorance, I would say. There is the ignorance that you shouldn't be um, uh, if, if something is really um, obvious. And then there is negligence that, you know, that you, that you can't be um, uh, uh, liable for. So that, this is what makes it so difficult because we, we all look at the result. We all look at, you know, what is the actual artist of the painting? We don't really want to know whether one should have been uh, careful enough in and, and, and be able to establish that new um, attribution. This is what makes it so tricky to um, to fight these cases. I bet. I bet. Um, so we only have a couple minutes left here. Um, it, do you have another story you can pop in there? I mean, if you don't, I, I have one I could tell, too. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Go, go along, please. <laughs> Are you sure? Okay. Now, this... Um, well, first of all, I, I wanted to ask you this question, and it's okay if we go a little bit over. And that is... Um, um, don't you agree that it, it doesn't matter what auction house it is? It doesn't matter who the experts are. I mean, I've heard um, one of the big New York auction houses made a, um, I think it was a several million dollar mistake on a Asian art piece. Um, this was about five, five or six years ago. It doesn't matter what auction house it is, right? I mean, do you agree with that? I agree. I mean, sleeper cases have arisen at any kind of auction house, whether it's a very local small auction house or one of the big international auction houses. From a legal perspective, um, there is a difference. So both kinds of auction houses will not be held to the same standard. So judges are actually sensitive as to, you know, what means does an auction house have in order to assess uh, an attribution? Right, right. Okay, so... I'm going to tell, I really don't want to end these, the show on a negative note like this, but this is kind of a, it's kind of a sad story because it happened to a friend of mine. He, um, he grew up in a wealthy family, and he had an artwork. Oh, I have another uh, story I can tell you about after that real quickly that will end on a good note. So my friend, he has a, uh, an artist. I think it was uh, someone like George Brock or someone like that. It was a major artwork, but this artist was known for having two different eras of work, two different values of work. Through one of his eras and one of his times in life, his paintings didn't sell so well. Now, this goes back before the Internet. This was several years ago. So he brings the um, painting down to one of the two big auction houses. Well, there's three big auction houses in New York City. And um, he brings it in, and they consult 
and they said, you know, basically this is the low estimate, you know, the lower, like the $30,000 range. Your painting's in like the thirty to forty. that's what it, we had estimated at. And so my friend says, okay, go ahead, you know, sell it. And so almost a year goes by, they still don't sell the painting, and he's wondering what's going on. So he's in New York, and he says, um, and, and he's aware of the two different types of prices these pieces bring. So he says to them, uh, basically, what's going on with the painting? You know, no one's answering a call. And they said, well, we actually have someone that is offering to purchase this painting at the low estimate. So he says, really? The $30,000. And he just got this feeling, and it didn't feel right. And he says, bring me my painting now. So he had to wait for two or three hours before they got it out of storage and actually brought it to him. Um, and he was furious. And he... He basically went to the other big auction house in New York City, and it sold for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Mm. Now that is a case of greed, right there. I mean, that there was something <laughs> underhanded going on, and that's one of the major auction houses. So, I don't want anyone to think that this happens a lot, but occasionally something like this has happened. You know, it does happen. I mean, um, at the, at the end, the good news about all these cases is that we discover a masterpiece that we've thought to be lost forever. So um, that's the the bright side to any case. Yes, and uh, we're going to talk about your book as we close so people know where to find that. But um, I'm, I would like to, unless you want to end with a story, I'll end with one more story. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we've all remember uh, the, the yard sale of the Ding uh, Bowl, um, so you know we've we've mentioned that it's always when big uh, collections are getting sold that mistakes happen. You've mentioned also um, online uh, auction platforms, and another source for sleepers um, is uh, yard sales. So there was this case of um, of a family in New York who purchased um, a finely potted bowl at a yard sale for $3. And they brought the bowl to Sotheby's for an appraisal. And Sotheby's actually found out that it was a, a bowl from the Ding uh, Northern Song Dynasty uh, with an estimate of $200,000 to $300,000. And it was... Um, uh, it was catalogued as being the one of the two last well-known pieces, um, the, the other one being held by the British Museum in London. And it was finally sold to a Londoner art dealer for, hold yourself, 2,225,000, uh, sorry, 2 million, I should say, uh, way above 2 million dollars, oh, uh, including buyer's premium. So, I mean, the the family must have been really thrilled. <laughs> wow. So $3 turned into $2 million. That's $2 million, that's exactly. That's definitely winning the lottery. And also, <laughs> just so someone knows, I've been at this for 45 years plus. I hate to say it. But um, around that, and it it doesn't happen that much. But it does happen. It doesn't happen. I mean, exactly. <laughs> I go and I, I go to a lot of estate sales and... Um, all right, so I'll just tell this quick story because um, it also happened uh, to a friend of mine uh, when I was living out in California. He uh, would get uh, Craigslist, you know, look through Craigslist and um, online, and this uh, person in the actual town where he was from said they had a table for sale. And uh, so um, they had a picture of it, and he thought it looked pretty nice, kind of the type of thing he sells. He sold a lot of French uh furniture and decorative arts so he drives to their house and takes a look at it and he looks at the it had a it was mounted with a uh a sev uh porcelain cameo plate in the center of this table takes a look at it and the plates cracked right in the middle so he says uh well uh what are you looking for and they said uh they wanted a thousand dollars and he said well it's cracked he says i do like it i'll give you 800 so he did a show and he had it in his show for a few thousand dollars, an antique show. And the whole day went by, and finally someone came by, and they said, you know, I think I'll take that. And he says, you know, I, he goes, it's sold. It's sold. He, he changed his mind. 
And because he just started getting this feeling about it. So he brought it into Bonham's out in Cal in San Francisco, uh, Butterfields at the time. They took a look at it and the guy got like so excited about it. He said, this is really, really good. He said, um, we would like to take it. Um, he talked to his colleagues. He said, we'd like to put a $300,000 estimate on it. So now this is something psychologically <laughs> I've seen happen a lot. All of a sudden... That number gets thrown at you. You get scared and nervous. This is what happened to him. So he said, ah, I don't want to commit to that. So he sent a picture to, um, pretty sure it was Sotheby's in New York City. Um, they flew someone out to look at the table in the next couple of days. And so it ended up being the uh, cover lot of the catalog. Ended up being one of two tables known by this certain French maker. They repaired the they repaired the ceramic piece that was broken, and he said that he was on the phone when it brought two point five million dollars. So oh. yeah, not, it's about the <laughs> same. It as all the, right. It's about the same as a three dollar pot, you know. Yeah. <laughs> which is an, it is a fun it's a fun uh, a really fun business, and there are treasures. And there's a lot of times where someone will take a chance on something and they'll lose their shirt. So mm -hmm. there are two sides to it. Um, That's can, true. <laughs> can you give uh, the the listening audience uh, your information, how they could contact you if you'd like to hear from them, or uh, where where to find your book and the name the name and the, the title of your book, if you would? Sure, um, I, I'm more than happy to. Um, so my book um, is called "The Sale of Misattributed Artworks and Antiques at Auction." It's published by Edward Elger Publishing. You can find it on um, Edward Elger's uh, webpage, and um, it's also on my webpage. And if you would like to contact me, I have my my contact details. My webpage is um, www. Um, artsandlaw.ch Art and Law. Okay. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. Really, I had great fun. Yes, I really enjoyed talking to you today. And, uh, oh, just one last question. Um, do you have any thoughts of writing any other uh, books, um, you know, similar? Or I'm sure a lot of times what happens is someone all of a sudden hears about a whole bunch of new things coming down the line. <laughs> uh, have you had any plans on writing again? Uh, sure, of course. I'm um, I'm writing about um, artists and their rights um, to authenticate works of art. So I look at um, copyright now um, and and whether artists are entitled to um, to determine whether works of art that that they have actually created or forgeries so that they have not created um, they, whether they have a right to um, say that it has you know their uh, paternity or not so I look at um, artists rights uh, the power of artists basically and um, and unfinished works of art and disavowed works of art so all about disavowed. all wow. about that. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Again, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Martin. Okay. Bye now. Bye. All right, everyone. So thanks so much for uh, checking us out today. And uh, we'll be back at another time with another show on antiques. Uh, thanks again. And talk to you next time. This is Martin Willis from SeaboardAppraisals.com. Mm -hmm.